T.G. Wolf writes mysteries that takes your mind off your day job, distracts you from your chores you don't want to do, and gives you something to figure out beyond why your kid thought putting his finger in there was a good idea. Explore my two series. The De La Cruz Case Files, our modern-day police detective series set in my hometown of Cleveland, Ohio. Nothing is ever as easy as it seems. I mean, really, where would the fun be in that? Speaking of fun, check out my Diamond Trilogy. Diamond resurrected her CIA cover to find the truth out about her husband's death, and then she kept going. The third book, Psychotherapy, is coming in July from Down and Out Books. Pre-order now, like right now, unless you're driving, then do it later. Welcome to Mysteries to Die For. I am T.G. Wolf, and I'm here with Jack, my piano player and producer. This is a podcast where we combine storytelling with original music to put you at the heart of a mystery. Some episodes are original stories, where others will be classics that help shape the mystery genre we know today. All are structured to challenge you to be the detective to the solution. These are arrangements, which means instead of word for readings, you get a performance that's meant to be heard. Jack and I perform these live, front to back, no breaks, no fakes, no retakes. Support our show by subscribing, telling a mystery lover about us, and giving us a five-star review. And mystery readers, check out our print and ebook companions. The companion for this season is available in e-and trade paperback from online retailers. The discounted price with 20% off is available until the end of the season, which ends at the end of June 2023. This is season five, Move It or Lose It. This season contains original stories paying homage to the vehicles that propel mysteries forward. A train was the setting for Agatha Christie's famed Murder on the Orient Express, and a riverboat then took center stage on Death on the Nile. Cars have been prominently featured in American crime stories with the glory of the getaway vehicle. Then there are the heists, from carriages to trains to armored trucks. For episode 12, an 1895 era horse-drawn carriage is a featured vehicle. This is Her Last Carriage Ride by me, T.G. Wolf. Chapter 1, Under the Strawberry Moon It's as if the angels dropped a dollop of cream right in the middle of the night sky, my sister said as she peered up at the full moon. The Indians call it the Strawberry Moon. Though nearly nine at night, the sky over Cleveland, Ohio, held the color of dusk. Couples strolled along the paths weaving through Wade Park. A close distance to us, a sharp crack of fireworks cut through the night. Boys raced, laughing as they looked over their shoulders. I suspected they were the source of the pre-Fourth of July celebration and smiled, seeing myself in their antics. It doesn't look like a strawberry at all, I said to my sister. Besides, everyone knows the moon is made of cheese, a good scotch cheddar, I should say. She slapped my arm playfully. Grant, you're making up stories, just like when I was a child. I'm 20 years old and will no longer fall for your silliness. I kept my arm tight around her, not for her protection, but for that of others. Payne McPherson was known to look one way and walk another with unfortunate results. It's true, I said, trying to keep the laughter from my voice. It's not true, she said, nodding to the other walkers as they passed. The name comes from the strawberries coming into season in June, at least in this part of the country. In other places, they're picking strawberries for weeks already. I shook my head, and you think I'm silly. You are silly, dear brother. I read just last week in the Farmer's Almanac. Why, in California, they can grow strawberries all year round. She laughed softly. What do you know of plants? You wouldn't know foxglove from dandelion, which is a shame because one would kill you dead. I brought her to a halt. Should I be worried that my sister knows of plants with the potency to kill me dead? Firecracker sounded off in series. A quick pop, 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 pop. Pain wrinkled her nose. I do wish that would stop. Help! Someone, please help us, 
A man's voice shouted from the road just up the short slope. Stay here, I ordered, and ran up the grass lawn toward the road. A carriage drawn by two horses was stopped nearly in front of me. A woman sitting on the rear bench clutched her chest. A tall man in a well-cut suit knelt over here. Enid, stay with me. He looked up then and saw me. She's been shot. I mounted the carriage. In the light of the full moon, details were as clear as if they'd been at high noon. Her ruffled shirt was practically a go, as white as new-fallen snow, besmirched by the growing dark blossom over her right breast. Open her shirt, I said. I need to see the wound. With the strength of a bear, the man tore the shirt open, buttons flying from their posts. A wound marred her breast above the lace of her corset. I brought my ear close. Wet bubbles popped in my ear. Her lung has been punctured. We'll take her home, a voice said behind me. The carriage shifted as pain climbed in. Not one to wait for permission, she took the reins and brought the carriage around until we were headed to our family home. I pressed my kerchief to the woman's chest. The woman laid still, her breathing shallow. The carriage rocked as pain took the turn. The man hugged the side to stay inside. I pinned the woman to the bench with my shoulder, keeping her from falling. Slow down, pain. We cannot save her if you kill us. Rear bench driver, she muttered, not slowing as we approached our house. You bring her to the surgery. I'll alert father and uncle. She dropped from the carriage and raced up the front walk. Easy, I said to the man as I lifted the woman. The man leapt down. Hand her to me. Does a doctor live here? A surgeon, I corrected. The best in all of Great Britain and these days the United States. Dr. Ewan McPherson met us at the door. Quickly now, Grant. Is it a pistol wound, as Payne said? Aye, father, large caliber. I urged the man carrying his patient into my father's surgery. Punctured her lung, I should say. She's unconscious, my father said as the man laid her gently on the table. Good, all the easier on her. He began his examination. Punctured lung, surely, dangerously close to the heart. Too much blood, he said, muttering to himself. Might have nicked an artery. Deadly business, that. Deadly business. Pain. I need suction if I'm to see a thing. Aye, Father. Payne stepped to his side and inserted a glass tube into the wound. She began working a small bellows with her foot. The surgery was silent as my father worked, save for the sucking sound of the medical device. I got you, my father said, withdrawing a bullet with forceps. Grant, needle and thread. What have we, Ewan? Uncle Alistair raced into the surgery, his shirt still untucked. A pistol wound. My father cursed, lightly for him. I fished the bullet, still too much blood. Uncle Alistair pulled a small stool next to the woman's head. He pressed his fingers to her neck, frowned, and then used a device of his own invention, pushing air into her body. You're out of time, Ewan. I'm working as fast as I can, damn you. Pain, more suction. Father bent over the woman, the needle rising to and from and driving back into the wound. He lifted his gaze to his brother. Uncle Alistair shook his head. What, the man asked. I'd forgotten he was in the surgery. The man had pressed himself into a corner as far as he could get away from the bloody scene. It was Payne who delivered the news. She has passed. Chapter 2. The Former Mrs. Carter I sat on the steps, smoking a cigar, recalling the details of the last hour, who had walked past me in pain. There were couples, all of them, and the boys who raced by us. What had they carried in their hands? Did one have a pistol? Patrolman Grant McPherson, my name was spoken in an Irish brogue, badge number 165. I looked to a mountain of, of a man coming up our walk. He had thick blonde hair, worn in the current fashion. His suit was well fitted, certainly a challenge for his tailor given the difference between his shoulders and his hips. I am, I said rising. Detective Kean Kelly, the mountain said. I understand you've had a messy night, patrolman. Yes, sir, I said. A woman is dead, Mrs. Enid Carner. She was shot while driving in Wade Park with her beau, Mr. Charles Ridley. They're both inside. Kelly looked up at our large house. Who be living here? Dr. Zewin and 
Alistair McPherson, I said, leading him up the stairs to the beveled glass door. McPherson, Kelly repeated. He whistled between his teeth as he stepped into our foyer. Foyer was a large room with five paneled wood doors and a staircase that led to the upper levels. The house was grand, designed for as much enjoyment as a living space. Suddenly, I was reluctant to bring the stranger into my family home. Look here, detective. My family is... Grant, Mr. Ridley has fainted. Payne suddenly came to a halt when she saw I was not alone. Too much blood, I fear. Are you squeamish at the sight of blood? She asked Kelly. Nay, he said, blinking as if he couldn't quite believe what he was seeing. Dressed in the most modern style, her chestnut hair in a sophisticated twist, my sister looked the perfect lady, save for her blood-stained apron. She rolled her eyes. Another useless man. Where do you find them, Grant? I am not that man, Kelly said, suddenly remembering he could speak. Useless or squeamish. He cleared his throat. I'd like to see the dead woman. Payne grinned. I'll be happy. I'll take the detective, I interrupted. You are seeing to Mr. Ridley, right? He'll need to be conscious when the detective talks to him. This way, I said, as I led Kelly down the hallway to the surgery. I recounted to him the tales of Wade Park. He listened without interruption until we reached the surgery door. There I paused. My father did everything he could, detective. You may have heard what doctors say about surgeons, but it isn't true. Men like my father save lives. With that warning, I threw open the doors. Father, uncle, this is Detective Kelly with the, with the Cleveland police. Ah, Kelly, my father spat the name like a curse. His Scottish brogue thickened. What good is an Irish potato eater? Ah, McPherson, Kelly said with the same vehemence, his lip curling in a snarl. A Scottish dog, to be sure. American potato eater, I said, standing between the pair. American dog. This is an American dead woman, and somewhere out there is an American killer. Kelly grunted, deep in his throat as he went to the fresh corpse lying on the surgery table. Did the bullet strike her heart? No, for all that good it did her. My father went to a model of the human body. He held a glass rod between his fingers. The bullet entered her chest cavity at an odd angle. It had to come from below and to the right. Kelly leaned down, looking up at the proposed trajectory. Was she standing? I shook my head. Sitting when I came upon her, Mr. Ridley can confirm. Kelly was thorough in his inspection of her person. In addition to the wound, he examined her hands and her fingers, her face and her hair. At one point, I believe he sniffed her. You recovered the bullet, he asked. My father handed him a small glass jar. If she had survived, she would have been paralyzed. The cause of death was drowning. Blood filled her lungs until she could not breathe. Kelly held up the jar to the light. A large caliber. He put the jar in his pocket. Take me to her gentleman. Chapter 3. The Honorable Charles Ridley I escorted Kelly to our formal parlor by ga gaslights, my father and uncle staying in the surgery. Payne was bent over a side table, preparing tea. Mr. Charles Ridley sat in one of our high-backed chairs, sweating and trembling. Payne, I growled at my sister, what did you give him? A tincture of cocaine and caffeine. It perked him up immediately, she said with the pride of accomplishment. Kelly inserted his body beside her. You have aided the case greatly. I looked between one of the Cleveland's four detectives and my grinning sister. Your witness, I reminded him. Mr. Ridley, he said, I'm Detective Kean Kelly, Cleveland Police. Tell me what happened tonight. Ridley had black hair poking out in all directions. He wore a brown suit, high quality, with the most stylish ne necktie. He was in his late 20s and had an air of affluence. Mrs. Carter and I attended a party given in my honor by Mr. and Mrs. Morley. I was recently appointed to a circuit bench, a promotion from my current position. He paused, his energy waning. It was not a good evening. Kelly glanced at me over his shoulder. Take notes, McPherson. What happened at this party, Mr. Ridley? Arguing, Ridley said. Too much arguing. I, 
Oh, the last thing I said to Enid was unkind. Now I can never apologize. A tear ran unchecked down the man's cheek. Tell me about the drive in the park, Kelly said coaxingly. It was a warm night. The moon was bright. It was my idea, Ridley said. I wanted to put the argument behind us. Enid was not of the same mind. She refused to sit next to me in the driver's seat. Still, I thought the drive would soften her. There were firecrackers going off. Someone threw some into the road and it frightened the horses. It took some time to settle them. I turned and saw Enid gasping with one hand pressed to her chest. I jumped in the back and I called for help. He came, Ridley raised his eyes to me, and, and, a, and the woman. She turned the carriage around and brought us here. Ridley trailed off as though the sights and sound of the surgery were beyond his ability to retell. Kelly knew what happened once she had arrived. Who was Mrs. Carter to you, Mr. Ridley? She was a friend, he said eventually. She wanted to be more than friends, but I wasn't sure. There was Hannah, you see. You argued over the other woman. When there was no response, Kelly pushed further. Do you own a pistol, Mr. Ridley? Are you carrying it on you? Yes, I own a pistol, Ridley said firmly. It's in my house, in my desk drawer. You certainly can't believe that I shot her. I was driving the carriage. Chapter 4, An Unexpected Assignment Are you sure it wasn't a specter who assailed the Lady Grant? They come out of nowhere, well, not nowhere to be sure, more like Hades, but all the time, one moment they're there and the next moment they're not. John Henry Watson, badge number 142, was a theorist. That is to say, he had a theory about everything. The answer to why I was tired this morning begot my retelling of last evening exploits, which turned into Watts's theory on how I failed to see the shooter. Why would a specter use a pistol? I asked when we approached our police station. If a being had the power of Hades at his fingertips, would they not use lightning to strike the woman down? I pulled the door open. It doesn't make a drop of sense. Maybe you're right, he said, sounding disappointed. Then he gasped. More likely it was a werewolf. It was a full moon, you said. It shot the woman, changing itself into a wolf, and then ran off. That was why you did not see the shooter. I stepped around him, took off my hat, and headed toward the stairs. The basement housed our lockers and the large table where we take our lunches. That was not why I didn't see the shooter. Lieutenant Amos O'Hurley stepped out of his office. McPherson, he shouted, in here. Surprised at the unexpected order, I detoured to his office, my hat in my hand. I stepped in to find Detective Kelly sitting in the broad chair used by guests. Detective Kelly here is in need of an assistant, Captain O'Hurley said, dropping into his chair. He seems to think you can be of use in this Enid Carter affair. My attention snapped to the detective. I had wanted to investigate, of course, but I never thought to have the opportunity. Don't get too excited, O'Hurley said, reading my face like a penny magazine. It's a temporary assignment. And not an easy one, Kelly said, rising. I will have you running across the city, tracking down leads, studying, researching, and doing everything else that I'm not in the mood to do. I nodded. I understand, sir. My schedule is your schedule, he went on. Day, night, weekends, you still up for it? I am, I said definitively. When do I start? He fitted his hat to his head. Five minutes ago. Pull a cart around. We have places to go and people to see. Kelly climbed in behind me rather than next to me and ordered the destination of Wade Park as though I were for hire. If he intended to set the tone for our professional relationship, he certainly succeeded. I snapped the reins and set us in motion. Kelly sat back on the padded bench, his chin lifting, his eyes closing. He appeared as though napping, but I suspected he was more lost in thought. His hands, large and scarred, were fisted on his lap, belying tension not visible on his face. I pulled into traffic, steering to Euclid Avenue and the east, into the summer sun. A block from our destination, I felt Kelly's weight shift forward. What kind of name is Payne? His question was phrased as an order, one that expected an answer. And Grant, for that matter, Kelly added, I know of no Scotsman with such a name. 
found it, found it wholly inappropriate for Kelly to be thinking of my sister. Payne had an air about her that attracted men, much like flowers do bees, and I have spent a lifetime swatting them away. I was soothed somewhat when he asked about the oddity of our names. We have American names, I explained. My father and mother left Edinburgh under rather unpleasant circumstances. I was born shortly after they arrived here, and my father wanted me to have an American name. He had a great regard for Ulysses S. Grant, and so I was named. My sister was named after Dolly Payne Madison, the wife of President James Madison. Kelly snorted, American names indeed. Pull around to mimic the path that Ridley's carriage took last night. He was quiet then as we circled the block, bringing us to the entrance of the road that was the southern part of the park. Stop here. I pulled on the reins. Whoa, whoa. Kelly's weight shifted again. Am I sitting in the position you found the unfortunate Mrs. Enid Carter? I looked over my shoulder. I found him on the right half of the bench with adequate room for another passenger on the left. I searched back through my memories, seeing once again my approach to Ridley's carriage. She was further right, I told him. Her back was positioned in the very corner of the seat. Her legs, I do believe, were more to the center. Kelly adjusted according to my instructions. I, she would have a better view of Ridley without the strain of turning her head. A wise choice of a woman who wanted the man driving her to be aware of her irritation with him. Was Ridley in the same position you are? I don't know, I said. The carriage was stopped when I approached. Ridley was in the back, bending over Mrs. Carter. I did not see him when he was seated. Kelly inhaled deeply and then nodded in agreement with some internal conversation. Proceed then, to the point at which you join them. I set us in motion once again, a slow prodding pace to create time for Kelly to observe. It was just about here, I said, bringing the horses to a stop once again. I retold the story, setting the stage. We were just beyond that big tree when we heard Ridley call for help. I could not see the carriage, for the tree, you see. I circled it and ran up the slope. I slipped, I do recall. The grass held the water from the late afternoon rain. I must have come through the hedgerow, although I don't recall doing so. My attention was already on Mrs. Carter. You recognize she was in distress, McPherson? From that distance, you knew she had been shot? I shook my head. I had no idea of the pistol wound, only that she was ailing. I've been an assistant in my father's practice since I was a boy. I've often looked upon the face of death. Mr. Ridley opened her blouse for me and I examined the wound. I could hear her laboring to breathe and suspected the bullet had pierced a lung. My father successfully repaired such damage before. The hell you say? The reaction Kelly displayed was no different than others. Surgeons were known as hacks who removed limbs whether they needed to be or not. My father knew it could be more and had proved it, but the world was not ready for his revolutionary ideas. I do say, my tone dared him to speak against my father. Superior or not, I would defend my family. My father was the only chance Mrs. Carter had to survive her wounds. Payne had reached us at that point, although I did not see her. She took control of the reins and brought us around. A woman driving, he snorted again, entertained at some thought I wasn't privy to. Then he leapt out of the carriage and proceeded to study the ground. Ridley indicated that fireworks startled the horses. The roadway is notably clear of debris. He paced in the direction we had come. Suddenly he squatted down. I set the brake and hurried to join him. He pointed to the left and the right. The best location for such, such mischief is behind the hedgerow, perhaps with the additional blind of a tree. I followed his gaze to a tree that was thick enough to hide a boy, but certainly not a man of Kelly's girth. I would have seen him, I said. I came up the slope directly behind the position. Are you certain you did not see a lad, Kelly said, not challenging the accuracy of my statement then he has timing to thank. By the time you cleared the larger tree below, he had left his position, fired the pistol at Mrs. Carter, and fled the scene. Let us recreate it. Well, we spent the better part of an hour simulating the event from my point of view. My boots had scraped the vegetation from the hill, revealing the path I had taken from the walking path to the road. Kelly played the role of the vi villain, but with every interaction, I was able to see him. Change rolls with me, he ordered, half sliding down the steep hill to the walking path. Take position behind this tree where I am. At my order, run out, shoot at the carriage, and run away behind it. 
In only two iterations, he had last lost sight of me. The smaller tree had acted as a blind. Kelly began searching the ground on the hill. I did the same, although I didn't know what I was looking for. Sir, I do not understand why a boy would shoot at Mrs. Carter. It doesn't make sense. Do you think it was random? Some type of childish dare? It's possible, McPherson, he squatted down. Possible, but unlikely. It appears that our criminal slid down the hill, lost his cigarette, and left a boot impression on the way. Put your own up here. Mine is far too large. I did as he asked. It's the same size. Kelly rose to his full height and cracked his knuckles. We do nay hunt a boy, but a man. Chapter 5, No Love Lost The home of Mr. Oliver Morley and his wife Agnes was both more and less grand than the one my father had built for my mother. It was smaller in overall scale, with ceilings of ample but less lofty heights. It was grander in that it had woodwork that was polished to near dazzling opulence with bronze accents, similarly radiant. Mr. Morley was of average height and cut a trim figure. His suit was of the highest quality, as were the cufflinks with the M recessed into the center of the square. My wife and I hosted a small dinner party in honor of Mr. Charles Ridley, detective. He has recently been appointed as a judge. He is our nephew, but more like a son as he came to live with us when he was a boy. Mrs. Morley was seated next to her husband on the couch in the parlor. Her white blouse was elegant for the subtle adornment with ribbons and lace at the neck and cuffs. My dear sister Agnes came to live with us when her husband died. We loved Charles, but there was no question that he would stay when she too died. Walter was simply too deeply attached. He was only five when a twelve <laughs> he was only five when a twelve year old Charles moved in. The two boys became thick as thieves. Kelly was seated in a sturdy chair while I remained standing at his shoulder. As boys are wont to do, you must be very, very proud of Mr. Ridley. For all intents and purposes, he is your son. We are, Morley said brightly. Charles has always been an excellent student. I was disappointed when he turned away from the financial markets, but it was clear where his passions laid. Through my connections, he began working at the most prestigious firm while still studying. He made himself invaluable to one of the partners, who the governor appointed to the bench some years ago. When the man died, in his chambers no less, Charles was selected to succeed him. The front door opened and then closed. A younger, slimmer version of Oliver Morley stepped into the parlor. Hello, mother, father. Mrs. Morley looked up at her birth son with maternal warmth. Walter, darling, this is Detective Kean Kelly and Officer Grant McPherson of the Cleveland Police. They are investigating the untimely death of the unfortunate Mrs. Carter. Yes, unfortunate, Walter said, rounding to stand behind his parents. It is a shame you have to waste your efforts on such a pariah. I am certain you have better uses for your time. Walter, his mother chided, mind that tongue of yours. I am a servant of the people, Kelly said, easing the situation. Then he navigated the conversation with the dexterity of a boxer in a ring. With deliberately worded questions, he drew out the facts. Mr. Morley had a small collection of firearms, an interest he shared with his sons. All were competent marksmen. A collection of revolvers, rifles, and dueling pistols was kept in the library, with the exception of those his sons owned themselves. Charles Ridley owned a Remington Model 1875. The 44 caliber revolver was a gift from the Morleys upon graduation from law school. Ridley did not have it on his person last night, evidenced by a comment that he should have brought the gun to add to the fireworks. Miss Hannah Warren had joined the party without the benefit of an invitation. Mrs. Morley overheard Miss Warren had professed her love for Ridley, who asked how she could have done such a thing. Mrs. Morley did not know what indiscretion the young woman could have committed. 
Mrs. Carter had been overly friendly with Mr. Edward Krause, a wealthy widower with no heirs. Mr. Ridley had taken exception to the way she fawned over the man. Mr. Morley walked in on a heated discussion that ended the evening for everyone. Walter Morley and his brother had had words over his brother's, quote, blindness. He was doing everything in his power to help his brother see that the woman for what she was, a gold digger. I had words myself with Mrs. Carter, Mrs. Morley began hesitantly. She bragged about expecting Charles to propose marriage and moving to Columbus with him. She was counting his money, sitting in the rooms with all of my friends. I told her, privately of course, that she would never see a nickel of Charles's money. She laughed at me, detective, and yes, had I a gun, I would have shot her. A mother protects her children. Chapter 6, The Woman in Question Kelly climbed onto the driver's seat behind me and took the reins. Read back the notes you took, he said as he set us in motion. He made minor comments in regards to my notes, primarily grunts that I took as approval of the contents. When I completed my report, we pulled up in front of a home no more than a year old. A manservant opened the door and thoroughly examined Kelly's credentials before admitting us to the entry. He would have left us there while he informed Mr. Ridley of our arrival, but Kelly followed him into the private library. I, of course, followed Kelly. Ridley was not mourning alone, but in the company of a pretty young woman. She wore a calico dress that was in high fashion. Good afternoon, Mr. Ridley, Kelly said over the flustered butler's reprimand. Detective Kelly, Mr. McPherson, I, I wasn't expecting you. It's fine, Wembley, Ridley said to his man. I welcome anything the Cleveland police can do to solve Enid's murder. This is Miss Warren, a family friend. Miss Warren had been schooled to keep her composure no matter the situation, for her face did not change with the introduction. Her body, however, bowed as if she had taken a blow to the gut. Miss Warren, Kelly began, signal signaling me to again act as a scribe. It is fortuitous that we should find you here. I was anxious to talk to you. Tell us about the disagreement you had with Mrs. Enid Carter last night. I, I, her guilty eyes darted between Kelly and Ridley. Come now, Kelly said. You were overheard both by Mr. Ridley here and with the newly deceased. You wanted Mr. Ridley to move Mrs. Carter aside in your favor. Is that not the case? She blushed but straightened her spine. I love Charles. I always have and I always will. Mrs. Carter opened a wound between us, one that I unfortunately allowed to fester. I expected Charles to see through the ruse. When he did not, I blamed him. It was Mrs. Morley who helped me see that Charles was weak and I needed to save him from himself and from her. Now Hannah, Mr. Ridley began, clearly offended at her description of him as weak. She clutched his hand and looked up with a general expression. I am sorry, darling, but when it comes to women, you see us as gentle creatures, incapable of lies and deception. Kelly chortled, bringing a smile to Miss Warren's face. Detective Kelly knows the truth, as I'm sure you do now, she continued. I never betrayed you, my darling. I never could. Ridley looked a caged animal, embarrassed to be caught publicly in a private discussion. You could not prove that you hadn't been with Mr. Anderson. I gave you every opportunity to provide evidence in your defense. She could not prove a negative, I said rather involuntarily. Science teaches us that we can only prove positives, not negatives. If Miss Warren had been with this Mr. Anderson, which I am certain you have not, Miss, then there would have been evidence to be found. Miss Warren, Kelly said, do you own a pistol? She nodded. Two, in fact. I have my father's dueling pistols locked in my safe. They haven't been fired in years. You're welcome to inspect them, detective. I am confident you will find that they are not the weapon you're looking for. I hated Eden Carter, but I wanted to see her cast aside as she had done to me. I never conceived of killing her. Ridley seemed to come out of his stupor, inserting his large frame between Kelly and the woman declaring her love for him. Certainly you do not suspect Hannah of this crime. Why, she left the party an hour before Enid and I did. 
a party she wasn't invited to, Kelly said. Nonetheless, Ridley said, raising his voice. She left, escorted home by my brother, Walter. She was nowhere near Wade Park last night. Kelly raised a thick blonde eyebrow. Is that true, Miss Warren? She nodded sharply. Walter escorted me home, allowing me to cry on his shoulder. He entertained me with silliness, jokes and fireworks and other foolishness. At my door, he encouraged me not to give up the fight. She lifted her face to Ridley. Your brother was determined to protect you from yourself, and I was more than willing to be a party to whatever scheme he might come up with. What was this scheme of his, Kelly asked. Did he tell you he intended to murder Mrs. Carter? When Ridley objected, Miss Warren quieted him with a hand on his arm. Of course not, Detective. Walter intended to use his father's connections to investigate her finances. He suspected she had a role in her first husband's death. I have no idea if there was truth to it or just hope. Walter contemplated blackmail, not murder. Kelly glanced at me and I made a note to investigate the death. What was her husband's name, please? Michael Scott Carter, Ridley said. He was a successful merchant and died in an accident at the port. I don't see how Enid could have been a party to it. It was a robbery gone wrong. She sold her husband's business, Carter Merchantile, to his top employees. Miss Warren sighed. She was the type of woman who would never have enough money. Beyond your purse, she wanted your privilege. She wanted to be more than a merchant's wife. She wanted to be a judge's wife. Ridley rejected Mrs. Warren's assessment, but in this, I was certain she was right and he wrong. Mr. Ridley, I understand you own a gun, Kelly said. I have need to inspect it, sir. You asked about it last night. Ridley crossed the room to his desk and withdrew a revolver. I followed Kelly and watched his inspection. Remington model, 1875, fully loaded, no smell of gunpowder. When did you last fire the gun, Mr. Ridley? In spring, he said. My uncle, Walter, and I took a short trip that included target shooting. I assure you, I am hardly more than an adequate marksman. Kelly set the women back down on the desk. It hardly takes an expert marksman at close range, Mr. Ridley. Chapter 7, Beneath the Surface I had spent the rest of the day executing a list of tasks that Kelly had rattled off. Included were researching the circumstances of Mr. Michael Scott Carter's death and the judge Charles Ridley was succeeding, confirming the caliber of the bullet taken from Mrs. Carter and verifying Miss Warren's alibi. The day had been a grand departure from a standard day of policing and left me in want of a good meal. I returned to my rooming house, refreshed myself, changed into my civilian clothing, and left in short order for my family home. Having left the station with Kelly meant I hadn't eaten since the toast I had for breakfast. My timing would allow me to walk in the door just as our cook was finishing the meal. While I did not sleep in my childhood bed, I was man enough to acknowledge that the food provided by my father and uncle's professions was far superior to that I could purvey on a patrolman's salary. I opened the door to the resounding joy of my sister's laughter. That cannot possibly be true, she sung out. Why, no man could do that. The voice that answered had a distinctively Irish tenor. I assure you, it's nothing but true. I slammed the door, making my presence known, and stalked into our partner. There, Detective Key and Kelly sat on the couch, with my sister. Detective, I said, drawing their attention. Pain popped up from the couch, her youthful energy in full display. Grant, perfect timing, brother dear. Mr. Kelly is joining us for dinner. Isn't that wonderful? I did not share her enthusiasm for the man who was lavishing attention on my sister. Has there been a development in the case, Detective? Kelly set his cup and saucer on the table. The delicate shyness seemed far too small for his hands. I came to find your address, he said. I was anxious to hear how you came along your tasks. Miss McPherson, we agreed you would call me Payne, Kean. Kelly smiled, the besotted fool. 
Payne said you were more likely to come around for dinner and that waiting was the best course of action. I was correct, Payne said smartly, as a small choir of bells rang out. Will you escort me to the table, Kean? Kelly rose and extended his arm. It would be my honor. Coming, McPherson? Dinner at the McPherson house was never a quiet affair. But put a surgeon, an engineer, and a police detective in a room, and you have a conversation that's unfit for any lady, except my sister. Where do you think the gun is? Payne asked Kelly. Do you really think our fiend ran off with it? If he were caught, he could be hung on the spot. If it were me, she said thoughtfully, I would toss it in the lagoon. I can have it dragged, Kelly said. It is a messy affair, but it could be done. Uncle Alistair clapped his hands. Perhaps my induction balance contraption would be of use. I've made improvements over Alexander Graham Bell's original design. It is smaller, thereby more mobile. It helped you and find a bullet in a leg just last week. If it could do that, I'm sure it could find a pistol in a pond. An outing, Payne cried, directly after dinner. I looked to Kelly, who was not inclined to be helpful at all. Directly after dinner, he agreed. McPherson, what came of your tasks? Four pairs of eyes were upon me. There was no saving this for tomorrow. Miss Warren, I said, was at home at the time of the shooting, sitting in the garden with ten other people. Judge Luther Collins died of heart failure, a condition he had been warned about by his physicians. It was a natural death. Now, Mr. Carter was killed during a robbery on the docks. The only strange note was that he had had less than $5 on him at the time, according to his clerk. No one was charged with the murder. Kelly pulled apart his pheasant. Did you find any connection back to his wife? I shook my head. She was not considered a suspect. She was interviewed, but her testimony is not included in the file. She was the beneficiary of a life insurance policy, and she sold the business two weeks later to Mr. Clark and Mr. Battershall for a nice sum. Truly, Mrs. Carter was set for life, even if she lived somewhat extravagantly. I thought to ask Mr. Morley if the amount of the sale was something that should have raised an interest. Excellent thought, Kelly said. And what of the bullet caliber? It was a 50 caliber round, I said. I spoke with Winchester, who considers himself an expert in such things, given his name. He suspects our murder weapon is an older style of handgun, possibly a dueling weapon. A dueling weapon, Cal Kelly repeated, smiling broadly. Then he shrugged his broad shoulders. Mr. Morley's collection included dueling weapons, and Miss Warren admitted owning a pair. Further investigating is, ne is needed, to be sure. I called on a number of Mrs. Carter's acquaintances. It seems our Miss Warren was correct about her rival's intentions. Miss Carter had money, as you have deduced, but being the wife of a merchant had not gotten her invited to the parties to which she aspired. Her solicitor is a firm where Mr. Ridley had worked, and it seems their first meeting was chance. Their second was not. After dinner, instead of a nice brandy and a swing on the porch, I was knee-deep in Wade Lagoon, holding my uncle's invention below the water surface. I walked like some unfortunate hunch creature skulking along the shore. Go out further, Grant, Payne shouted. I could throw a pistol farther than that. I lifted my gaze and then scowled at the delight on her face. Now you have no idea where he was when you threw it, if he threw it. I agree, my father said. Don't be a Nancy boy, afraid to get wet. Go further. Kelly paced the shoreline, taking great delight in being on land. Are you certain that device will find a gun? If it can find a bullet, it can find a gun, my uncle reasoned. Slow down, Grant. The magnetic waves need time to rebound. If I go any slower, I said, I won't be moving. And then the tone of the vibration changed. All right, Jack, it's your favorite part. We've reached the deliberation. Alrighty. So did you, uh, first I'm just going to pause and say, did you like this being set in Cleveland in 1895? I couldn't tell. Okay. <laughs> I got very confused throughout it because the first, I couldn't figure out where it was set at first. And then you're ah. like, the best doctor in England. And I'm like, we're in England? <laughs> and they started, kept talking about Cleveland and I'm like, okay. I, I, okay, it's Cleveland. He was the best doctor in Scotland, and then he got chased out, and he ended up in Cleveland, Ohio. I figured that out after a few decades. Anyway. 
All right, so someone killed Enid Carter. Yes. A man, Carter, and it was not a street urchin. So here are the people that Detective Kean Kelly and Patrolman Grant McPherson have in play. All right. All righty. Mr. Charles Ridley, he was the object of Enid's attention and uh, was not a man who liked to share. Interesting, interesting. Mr. Oliver Morley, mm-hmm, Ridley's mm-hmm. uncle, mm-hmm. wanted only success for the nephew he loved like a son. Okay. Mrs. Agnes Morley, Ridley's aunt, uh, saw through Enid's facade to the glory hound that she was. <laughs> okay. Mr. Walter Morley, Ridley's cousin, knew Enid's intentions were less than honest and was determined to show his cousin her true stripes. I think it's weird how much the family cares about him. <laughs> well, they like adopted him. Yeah. He's like a son. And then we have Mrs. Hannah Warren, Ridley's previous love interest, and she's determined to win him back. All righty. All right. I, okay. So here are the clues as presented. So Enid Sh- Carter was shot while riding in the rear seat of a carriage that was driven by Charles Ridley. Uh-huh. She was shot with a fifty caliber bullet uh, determined to be from a dueling pistol. The bullet entered in an upward trajectory, penetrating a lung and nicking an artery. There was no gunpowder or other residue on Enid Carter. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. Mm-hmm. No shot from a gun was heard. Well, by yeah, obviously, because there's a bunch of firecrackers. Come on, even <laughs> I got that. The second you were like, there's firecrackers, I was like, I wonder who's going to, sh- when the gun's going to get shot. Crazy. It's not like every other mystery who's like, oh, there was all these fireworks. And then we turned around and Uncle Gerald was just dead. Wonder when that happened. Okay, we'll skip that bullet point because you, yeah. Okay. Anyway. So Charles owned a gun, but it was forty-four caliber, and he did not have it on his person that night. Alrighty. Trees screened the attacker from Grant McPherson's sight. A boot print and a cigarette were found along the likely exit path. The boot print was sized for an average-sized man. Uh-huh. Mr. and Mrs. Morley were at home after the party, Mr. Morley has a small but well-represented collection of firearms that included dueling pistols. Okay. Miss Warren was at her home, having been escorted there by Mr. Walter Morley, who entertained her out of her low mood. She was at a party with neighbors at the time of the incident. She inherited dueling pistols from her father, but they hadn't been fired in years. So it really isn't a surprise that Mrs. Carter was assassinated, but who made sure that it was her last carriage ride? I don't know. I don't know. So I don't, I can't even figure out. Probably you said it and I just missed it. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't even figure out what gun. Like, have we, I don't think we know which gun did it. We do not know which gun did it. We know it is likely out. a dueling pistol. Likely a dueling pistol. We know who owns the dueling pistols, which was. The Ridley family owns the dueling pistols. Ridley family. And Hannah owns dueling pistols. Exactly. And they found that. Didn't they look at both of Hannah's dueling pistols? Um, I think they are going to look at Hannah's dueling pistols. I thought they looked at it and said said nothing was shot out of it, or was that the forty five or whatever? 42? She said they looked at they looked at Charles forty four. Charles. And it hadn't been fired in months. Okay. Um, they have not yet put their hands on Hannah's, but she said that. She hasn't fired them since she inherited them. So they haven't been fired for a few years, according to her. So nobody has looked at Hannah's. Nobody's looked at the Ridley families either. Correct. Which is stupid. If you know it's a fifty caliber, you do that pretty early on, in my opinion. Well, that's what they're going to do that next. But if I put the deliberation after that. <laughs> no, I'm just saying for the detectives. Why wasn't that the first thing you did after you found out? You found out it's a fifty caliber. And then, right? Am well, I they wrong? no, they they found out at this dinner, and they're at gonna the check the next day. Well, I will say that um, the the uncle's homemade uh, metal detector has found the murder weapon. Grant is about to pull it out of Wade Lagoon. Yeah, and then they'll figure out if it's Hannah's. The thing is, is I'm sure multiple people had access to every gun that it could be. I really set this one up so you could figure out you could figure out how it was done. Figure so figure out where everybody was at the time. Well, I haven't been paying that much.
much attention. Okay. In fact, so I was where actually was Charles? thinking about the premises to the mystery I was going to write. <laughs> so I had a pretty good premise down. That's um, awesome. I'm stealing a little bit from this one, but only okay. a little bit. Okay. And, but not okay. like even stealing. The point is. Okay. So where was Charles? Where was Charles Ridley? I don't remember who okay. or which one. Is Charles the dad? Uh, Charles is the the boyfriend. So he was driving the carriage. Okay. So he was in the front. He wasn't looking back. There's a bam, bam, bam. Yep. He turned around and he saw her. Yep. So is he a suspect? Isn't everybody a suspect until okay. they're not? I guess he's a suspect. I don't think it's him. Um, so where were the aunt and uncle, Oliver and Agnes Morley? At a dinner? Right. They were at they were at home. Their dinner party fiasco party just broken up. Okay. So dinner was over. Yep. So, so they could be anywhere. Theoretically, right. theoretically, they could be anywhere. But so Hannah had left an hour before Charles and Enid Carter uh-huh. escorted by Walter. OK. Hannah was sad. Yeah. Because her ploy to win Charles back was not working. And so Walter was trying to cheer her up. Okay. So he took her to her home, home. where she stayed. Stayed. And neighbors came over, so there were witnesses that Hannah was at home at the, at, home at the time that at the time, yeah. Enid died. Enid died. So it wasn't Hannah. So it wasn't Hannah. But they could have had Hannah's gun. They could have had Hannah's gun. Um, maybe, was it a tag team? <laughs> Here's what I'm thinking. Here's what you're thinking? I mean, if they had to get Hannah's gun, Mm -hmm. who would have access to it besides Charles, Charlie, you know, good old that guy. So if he had provided someone else, I think it's Walter. All right. I think it's Walter. I think I think we spent too much time on this. It's clear I'm not going to get it or I'm not going to be able to break it down. So I'm just going to let you break it down for me. Uh, I'm going with Walter. Um, He seems like an angry guy. Yeah. I don't see why he would kill over it. Um, I could see a parent or a mom. I could see the mom killing over it. The mom pretty much said if I had a gun, she'd already been dead. <laughs> exactly. And because of that, I don't think it's her. Um, which would be funny because one of these days you're going to make it that. And I'm going to be like, well, crap, I gamed it. <laughs> I've gotten so much better at writing mysteries since we do this because now I think, how would Jack game this? How would Jack be <laughs> dumb about it? Well, that's that's what I'm doing with the mysteries I'm writing. I'm just like, okay, it cannot be anything even remotely obvious so i have i have three vague premises on how i'm going to do it i'm very excited about it but it's going to take like three seasons for you to get all of those oh, that's awesome we're only doing one one of my episodes a season that's awesome so it's gonna it's like gonna a, take forever. like a puzzle that just be yeah. like that and then one day like 10 years from now we'll release a book it's just <laughs> all the finales of each season and it's just my like mine and it's gonna be like this huge storyline that's, that's awesome that's the goal it's gonna be extremely frustrating sherlock holmes because it's gonna be you have to wait a year for one episode um, anyway 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 all right so put down who you think expedited mrs carter's last carriage ride uh, write it in the in the comments, email it to us, and we'll find out if Jack is right and that it is Walter as we roll into Chapter 8 with Noble Intentions. The following day, Kelly and I worked to shore up his hypothesis. The recovered pistol was examined for identifying marks. None were found. An attempt to raise finger marks using the latest techniques proved unsuccessful. Four sets of dueling pistols were collected from the Morley and Warren's homes. I examined the guns and fired them for a comparison with the bullet recovered from Mrs. Carter. Mrs. Warren's pistol would not fire as they were badly in need of reconditioning. The two sets from Mr. Morley's collection was not missing a pistol and did not produce the markings matching the recovered bullet. Walter Morley reported to have sold a fine pair to a private collector the year prior He did not remember the gentleman's name, only that his money was good. On the third day after Enid Carter's death, Kelly had me assemble a small group in the Morley home. Present were Mr. Oliver Morley, his wife Agnes and son Walter, Mr. Charles Ridley, and Miss Hannah Warren. Thank you all for coming. 
Kelly began respectfully. We hardly had a choice, Ridley said, his arm protectively around Miss Warham. I prefer to save the theatrics for a stage. But this is a stage, Mr. Ridley, the grandest stage of all. Kelly held those arms out, his voice bold and commanding. And one of the actors is a murderer. He dramatically paused to let the truth of it sink in. Mr. Ridley, you had fallen under the spell of a cunning woman. By the accounts of those who love you, you were blind to her deceit. She played you, sir, like a virtuoso pianist. He rose with insult. I take exception to every word. You should not, Kelly said. It is your alibi. You had no gun on your person. There was no residue on Mrs. Carter. You had no mind for death. Of course I didn't, he stated. Neither did anyone else here. That isn't true, Mrs. Warren said. Detective Kelly could argue that I had a mind for death, but I did not kill Mrs. Carter. You did not, Kelly agreed. The pistols turned over for examination had, as you said, not been fired in years. Indeed, they were no longer operable. Walter Morley escorted you home after the party, where you stayed for the remainder of the evening. Of this, we have witnesses. Mr. Morley came to his feet and stood shoulder to shoulder with Ridley. Be careful what you say, detective. I am not without influence in this city. I am certain you are, Mr. Morley, but that influence will not be sufficient to protect one you love from a murder charge. Step aside, Kelly said, both of you. He was not considered of the same social status, but he was larger and stronger. There was something in his eyes that said he had faced far more dangerous situations than this one. Ridley and the sealer, senior Morley separated. Kelly now stood before Mrs. Morley and Walter. You had tried everything to separate Charles Ridley from Enid Carter, but he simply wouldn't hear you. He was leaving for Columbus, and you knew he was of the mind to propose marriage to the woman. It was not a love match, but one of position. Opportunity presented itself, and you took it. Kelly pulled a bundle from his pocket and unwrapped the pistol we had recovered from the lagoon. Mrs. Morley surged to her feet. I did it, she declared. It was my pistol. I saw the opportunity. Firecrackers startled the horse, distracting Charles. I, I ran to the carriage, and I, I shot her. Arrest me. I have no regrets. I never will when it comes to protecting my children. Mr. Morley was at his wife's side, panicked. Agnes, what did you do? Walter turned his mother to face him. She did nothing, Walter said. Nothing but love her son. I, not another word, Walter. Charles Ridley's order allowed no defiance. I am his lawyer, Detective Kelly, and forbid further questioning until I have had time to consult with him. Kelly nodded, offering no argument. You can meet him downtown, Counselor. McPherson, arrest Mr. Walter Morley for the murder of Mrs. Enid Carter. At dinner that night, my family was mesmerized by Kelly's telling of the case. How did you know the mother didn't do it, my father asked. It was her pistol. Not likely, Kelly said. I suspect it was of the set that Walter had owned the one he, quote, sold to a man whose name he couldn't remember. Even if she could shoot Mrs. Carter, she was not capable of racing through Wade Park without being seen. Had it been Mrs. Morley, Grant would have seen the woman scrambling away from the scene. But I didn't see Walter, I asked, feeling as though I had failed in my chosen profession. The likeliest answer is you simply were not looking, Kelly said. All of your focus was on the victim and the slim chance to save her life. I'm guilty of the same, Payne said. I was chasing after you, cursing slippers not meant for steep inclines. I remember movement, but I didn't pay a thought. Kelly, inexplicably, inexplicably seated next to my sister, patted her arm. Noble intentions, he said. Same could be said for Walter. I doubt he had the opportunity to truly plan it. Why had he fired the pistol with him? I... <laughs> okay, let's try that sentence again. Why had... Why did he have the pistol with him? I do not know. Possibly for his own protection. He had the firecrackers and the cigarette and an unexpected opportunity. He might have gotten away with it, if not for your metal detecting machine, Professor McPherson. Much of the circumstances could be explained away, but not the presence of his pistol in the lake. Payne threaded her arm through mine, resting her head on my shoulder. 
Well, I feel bad for everyone. Mrs. Carter was truly a horrible person from all accounts. You should investigate her for the murder of her first husband. Certainly, that would act in favor of Walter Ridley. I shook my head. Are you advocating for the murderer, dear sister? Under the right circumstances, she said. A throat cleared as a uniform officer rounded the back of the house. Detective Kelly, I've come to fetch you. There's been trouble at the port. Has there now? I assume it's the deadly kind? Kelly put out his cigar and rose. Coming, McPherson? The end. So you were right. It was Walter. I was right. And also, I don't know if you, the listeners, have noticed, my D flat gets stuck. So if randomly, I just start playing triplets and I'm just missing one of the triplets. I'm not touching it right now. The pedal's not down. It's just stuck. I guess so, we have to get the uh, piano man out. Yeah, sometimes the D does that too. It doesn't do it as much. But anyway, um, so <laughs> there was one point the D flat got stuck and I started doing triplets just cutting out the D flat and I was like all right this will work this will just be what it'll be anyway that's what happens when you play on a piano that was built in 1911 yeah 1911 yeah it was 1921 I'm pretty sure it's 1911 that would make it 112 years old or something yeah it's old I thought it was just like 105 or something because because a piano that's 105 years old can handle you banging on it much better than a 112 year old (laughs) piano that is true. So Jack's gotten spoiled because when he's away at college, he gets to pay, play on like grand piano. Eight different grand pianos. Grand Plus, they just got like a new million-dollar budget for more pianos, so yeah. they got a new piano that was like a quarter of a million. So then he comes home, and he hates on our uh, on our. I don't 19. hate on it. I have two it's keys that don't work, Ma. It's not a and matter he's of... missing one pedal, too. Uh, yeah, but I don't really use anything <laughs> but the sustain pedal for this, these purposes. We are way, way, way off topic. The topic is Mrs. Enid Carter's the, death. The second that you said Walter, or that you restated that Walter walked Hannah home, I was like, oh, it makes sense now. That's when he did it. That's when he did That's it. That's when he had the opportunity. Because it was like, oh, he walked her home. She has an alibi now. Yep. Well, yes. but She does. He, he therefore, does not. did not. I really tried to make this one solvable, that if you really thought about where all the people were, that Walter is really the only one whose time is unaccounted for, and and he's never really put the question. He's just he kind of said, "I walked her, I walked her home, and then went home." Um, but when you really put it together, everybody else. Sometimes it's hard to figure out who the killer is because it depends on what the author's style is and whether or not the killer is going to be questioned a bunch or not. Because sometimes the killer, killer, sometimes the killer has like two scenes but you have to put together it's him from the clues you get from other people yeah so it's more a matter of you know with this one it was he almost i for one forgot he was a character Mm. i i knew he was i thought he was the brother but he's technically the cousin because he says he's like a brother and all that jazz so like i kind of lost track of him there um and i guessed it was him partially because he sounded angry enough to have a motive, but that made him seem too obvious at first because he was right off the bat, like the first guy to show disdain for her. Mm-hmm. So it was like, oh, yeah, he didn't hide him. his feelings for her. Yeah. Even though this was a short story, I put so much thought into how that family unit operates. So it's not part of the written story, obviously. But mm-hmm. uh, Charles Ridley is actually going to turn down that judgeship to stay home to defend his brother. And I think he's going to be successful at it because it's going to end up being a lot of circumstantial, circumstantial. There we go. Right up with your quillers <laughs> <laughs> evidence. <laughs> uh, so his the whole course of Charles life is going to change. And yes, he's going to marry Hannah. And I think he's going to become a defense attorney and he'll have a long and successful career. And I don't know. I'm thinking about at some point writing some full length stories with these characters because I really had fun creating them and getting to know them. Mm-hmm. Oh. Yeah, that sounds like fun. I just hope you, the listeners, understand that none of my mysteries are going to be easy. They're all going to be stupid, and you're all going to be <laughs> like, what the hell is that Agatha Christie bullshit? <laughs> and believe me, the first one, I have a great plan for it. Um, I'm scared. I'm scared. So we have this plan that Jack's going to write it, and then I'm going to read it, but having never read it before, so that 
I'll be the one guessing. But the problem with that is then you can't prepare it all. Normally, she reads these before she comes on so that if you have phrases where you get muddled up, you can practice them. There'll be none of that. It will genuinely be live. Um, so yeah. I'm definitely we're gonna have to slow down. We have to on slow those. down. <laughs> um, but it'll be it'll be fun if we can get it to work. I'm gonna I'm looking forward to it though. I I obviously love puzzles. I love mysteries, and so you can see I'm gonna game it because I'm not gonna be thinking like what do the facts say. I'm gonna be like what's Jack thinking. <laughs> <laughs> all is, right. Yeah. Anyway. So Alrighty. a little bit more about me. Not that you all don't know a lot about me, but like you, I'm not one thing. I'm a writer. I'm an engineer. I'm a wife. I'm a mother. And what is li first on that list depends on the day. Beyond the title that I claim, I'm a person who loves learning and thoroughly enjoys a good puzzle. I'm creative and I get bored very easily. My guilty pleasures are Victorian and Regency romances, so I thought I'd try my hand at a period mystery. This is set in 1895 in my hometown of Cleveland, Ohio. In case you were wondering, I hold a BS in Civil Engineering from Case Western Reserve University and an MS in Civil Engineering from Cleveland State University, which gives me absolutely no background in writing, but I do it anyway. Writing mysteries and engineering isn't as different as you think it is. Both require logic and process to get from the starting problem to the solution. I want to say thank you to the Cleveland Police, the Cleveland Water Department, and Case Western Reserve University for your web pages that were just chocked full of Cleveland life in the late 1800s. That wraps up this episode of Mysteries to Die For. Please do support our show by subscribing and telling a mystery lover about us and giving us a five-star review. Check out our website, tgwolf.com forward slash podcast, for links to this season's authors. Mysteries to Die For is hosted by T.G. Wolf and Jack Wolf. Her Last Carriage Ride was written by T.G. Wolf. Music and production are by Jack Wolf. Episode art is by T.G. Wolf. All right, Jack. Give him a little something to remember us by until we come back in two weeks with your mystery that you've really teed us up for now. 